lots of good things going on around here and getting, uh, getting back into the, the ways of uh, just enjoying our church, you know, and instead of uh, trying to figure out what else is going around us. It's wonderful just to be here that we can be together again and just pulling ourselves together. It's going to be great as we move on. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing. What a blessing to be able to uh, be here with each other. And how great it is, Lord, that you've given us your word, that we can take it and use it for ourselves and for others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It said that uh, Louis Pasteur, the, the pioneer of immunology, asked that when he died, three words would be put on the headstone at his grave. The words were, Joseph Meister lived. Who was Joseph Meister? When Louis Pasteur met him, he was a nine-year-old boy who had been bitten by a dog that had rabies. And that was tragic because there was no drug to treat rabies at that time. Thousands of people died each year from the disease. Louis Pasteur had worked for years to develop a vaccine for rabies, and he believed he was close enough to experiment with it on himself. But Joseph Meister's mother begged Pasteur to give the medicine to her son. And Pasteur did, and Joseph Meister lived. Evidently, Pasteur was proud of that accomplishment and felt that it defined his life's work, and thus the three words chiseled on his uh, headstone, on his grave, Joseph Meister lived. Pursuing Greatness is the title of this short series of messages that we've been considering here on these recent Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons at Palview Christian Church. And this day, we read from the Bible true, powerful, life-defining words that whether or not they've ever been chiseled on a stone, they powerfully point to what we're all aiming for as we pursue greatness. Jesus, we have discovered, taught us to pursue greatness, but he emphasized that the goal of that pursuit should be true greatness. You say, what is true greatness? Well, true greatness is not high achievement that leads to power or possession or prestige or popularity or possessions. Rather, it's the personal possession of Christ-like character. Rather, it's the personal possession of Christ-like character. And the outward, perfect, uh, outward pr- practice of Christ-like service. It's humility before God and man. It's putting others first and serving others in the name of Christ to the glory of God. That's great, true greatness. It's true greatness because it, greatness, it is greatness defined by God. Greatness that reflects God. It's greatness that is linked to the uh, fulfilling of our purpose. It's greatness of lasting and eternal value. Again, on this Sunday, we'll be in the book of uh, 2 Timothy here, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. You can uh, find that in your Bible probably pretty quickly, back in the uh, backside of of, uh, your Bible. 2 Timothy, verses 1 to 8. If you've been here the past two days, you know that this book is actually is uh, actually a letter from Paul, Paul the Apostle, to his closest 
and most entrusted associate in the ministry of Jesus Christ, that is the man Timothy. And as we read this, we want to especially recall that as Paul wrote these words, he was imprisoned in Rome, persecuted for being a Christian, very near to being put to death by the authorities for the crime of being a Christian. Timothy, on the other hand, was far away in the city of Ephesus on assignment there to help the Christians with some great difficulties and challenges they were experiencing there. Paul wrote to encourage Timothy about that assignment, but even more to encourage Timothy about his continuance in ministry overall, especially after it was expected that Paul would be executed. Here's what uh, Paul said uh, to Timothy, to Timothy 2, 1 to 8. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, in the future there is, a laid, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here we see that Paul gives a final set of instructions to Timothy, all related to topics that he has previously covered with Timothy, about the instructions that he's previously been given in this letter. But here he writes more specifically about these matters. And while being succinct, he writes them more forcefully at this time. His opening words in verse 1 are, are this, I solemnly charge you. I solemnly charge you. Are, that reflects a command or an instruction that, uh, that practically places Timothy under an oath to comply. Paul is very serious about about this, about Timothy following through with these commands, because they're very, very important. But altogether, the words of these eight verses emphasize this. Sacrifice your life to Christ. Sacrifice your life to Christ. That is how to be great. And it sums up all that Paul has written uh, of this book, 2 Timothy. Notice uh, this emphasis at the end of verse 5 and and into verse 6 where Paul writes, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Here Paul is telling Timothy very straightforwardly, I will not be alive much longer. You need to carry on the ministry in which we've been partners, Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy. In other words, Paul was saying to Timothy, the leadership baton is being passed on to you, Timothy. 
and it will soon be fully in your possession. So Paul is saying, essentially, carry on. Carry on, Timothy. But at the same, uh, same time, he's also saying to Timothy, carrying on means sacrificing your life to Jesus Christ, Timothy, and to his purposes and cause. Paul uh, mentions here the words, he says, Paul mentions a, a drink offering. Speaks of a drink offering. A drink offering was, was part of the Old Testament way of worship that had its center of the offering of, of sacrifices on an altar to God. So a lamb, for instance, would be killed and, and put on the altar as an offering to God. But before it was burned on the altar, a drink offering would be given. That is, a measure of wine would be poured out around the base of the altar and perhaps also the uh, on the lamb on the altar as well. The entire measure was poured out as an offering to God. Paul says to uh, Timothy, Timothy here, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That is, Paul saying, the sacrifice of my entire life to Jesus Christ during my time here on earth is just about to be completed. The drink offering was the, the final act of the sacri- uh, sacrificial Ceremony before the sacrifice on the altar was consumed. So Paul was saying this, the final act of my life, sacrifice to Jesus, is drawing near. And in fact, it's underway. It won't be long, Paul was saying. It won't be long. Paul used uh, that metaphor of the drink offering at an earlier time also when previously he'd also been jailed because of his service to Christ. And he'd also had uh, that facing that possibility of death then. And he wrote to the Christians at the city of Philippi. Philippians uh, 2.17, Paul's words here, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your, of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul continuously considered his life Sacrificed. Think about that. Paul continuously considered his life as sacrifice to Jesus Christ. He lived for Christ all out. And that is the essence of the real Christian life. Remember uh, in past sermons here recently, uh, Mark 8, 34 and 35 in, in the scriptures. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, we read, And he, Christ, died for all, so that they who live might no longer lie for themselves, but for him who died and rose rose again on their behalf. We were created to live for God, and we were saved from sin and restored to life with God by Jesus Christ so that we might live for him. That's what being a Christian is all about. Paul writes in Romans 12.1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The very heart of true worship of God is the sacrifice of ourselves to God. It's a daily living all out for God. And such 
sacrificial living is manifested in many ways by especially uh, our being servants of Jesus Christ in the world. We're called to minister for Jesus Christ, loving others in his name, revealing God to them by the way we live, telling them the good news of forgiveness and life by faith in Christ, as well as helping them to grow into mature followers of Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of Christ to which we're all called. And the sacrifice of ourselves to Christ is very much about our sacrificing for that ministry. Remember Jesus' words, Mark 8.35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Our sacrifice to Christ is about sacrificing for ministry. And that in particular is what Paul is writing about to Timothy. Sacrifice in regard to ministry and to serving. Do that, Paul says, as you've been doing. He's, he's, he's really bringing this to Timothy. Do this. Do this as you have been doing. And we notice that, that Paul reminds Timothy of three motivations for sacrificing in the ministry of Jesus. Motivation number one, here it is. We are held accountable as servants of God. Our motivation number one, we are held accountable as servants of God. Verses 1 of chapter 4 says, by his appearing, or in in view of his appearing, uh, Paul reminds Timothy, uh, uh, speaks of uh, of this to all of us. And what, what he's saying is, we live in the presence of God. He is present. We live our lives before him at all times. And he observes our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to call to, to his call, his ministry. Jesus Christ will return. When he returns, he returns as a conquering king and a judge of the living and the dead. The living and the dead are those who are, are either alive at the return of Christ or who have uh, died before his return. All will be judged by him. You say, yeah, yeah, but not Christians because we get to skip the judgment, right? Yeah, because we're, we're, we're Christians. We, we get to skip all that. We're, we're, we got it made. Well, no, we don't. You have to read the scriptures. The scripture says we will face a different sort of judgment than non-believers, but we will be judged and held accountable for how we've lived. 2 Corinthians 5.10 reads, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3.14 and 15 indicates that the results of our judgment will be reward or loss. So we read 1 John 2.28, says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appear, appears we may have confidence and not sh- uh, shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We are servants of the Lord of the universe. That's a very, that is a very positive motivation to sacrifice and serve faithfully. There's no higher, more important calling than that. But with that privilege comes responsibility and also accountability. That's motivation number one. Motivation number two. The world needs us. The world needs us. Sacrifice and serve, uh, Paul writes to Timothy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The world of humanity is astray from God. Do you, ever, do you notice that lately? The world of humanity is astray from God. It is as lost as it can be. Not only are those folks, uh, those folks that are spiritually lifeless and enslaved to sin and on the road to eternal separation from God, they keep digging themselves into a deeper and deeper hole, leading them to numerous more problems now and a more terrible judgment that's ahead. They won't even listen to sound doctrine that is the truth as revealed by God because it speaks to them and their rebellion, rebellion against God and their sin, and it calls them to repentance, humility before God, and surrender to God. They accumulate, literally, teachers who don't speak about such things. The words there in the Greek are interesting. The, they accumulate teachers, and literally the word of how it's defined is teachers who are heaped togethers. Heaped togethers. And around the, uh, in the world, there are many, many teachers who are false teachers, and they all heap together. They accumulate those, uh, those teachers who don't speak about such things, but who do say their sinful ways aren't sinful, who keep on feeding them sensational, speculative stories and theories rather than just hard truth. A lot of people don't want to hear hard truth, but hard truth is hard truth. They are not without hope because God is a living God who reaches out to them. Jesus came, he said, to seek and serve that which was lost. Let's keep that in mind. He provided the possibility of forgiveness by paying for our sins through his death on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. He offers forgiveness to all who will believe, repent, humble themselves, and follow him. But lost people cannot make such a response to God without first learning of God's love, of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and of the opportunity to be saved. Those who are already followers of Christ are the bearers of good news. We have the message of life for them. What we have to remember is they desperately need us to not live for ourselves ignoring God in them, but to live for Jesus and to sacrifice for the ministry of Jesus. We carry the hope of Jesus in us and God will reach them through us if we live for Him, Jesus. Motivation number three for us, eternal life awaits for us. Paul, remember, wrote in verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. This Verse here, Paul's writing of his impending death, of course, but the word he uses it is interesting. He he calls it my departure. My departure is significant, he says. We still use that terminology of death, speaking, for instance, uh, of the dearly departed, by which we mean those who are no longer with us because they've ceased to live. But the literal meaning of, of the Greek word that Paul used in that is loosening. Loosening. The time of my loosening has come, Paul says. 
That word was used in a variety of ways, one of which was, for instance, breaking camp and moving on to a new location. The connection there being the thought of the loosening of tent ropes and you know, packing up the camp to go. Another way the word was used, uh, uh, was, used was in regard to a ship uh, setting sail. The idea there being the loosening of the mooring ropes as a ship weighed anchor to, to move on elsewhere. Paul used that word because it was and still is a, a fitting description of what death is for the follower of Christ. It's not the end of our existence. Neither is it our our transformation into something non-human. Nor is it our spirit loosed into the great unknown with no place of belonging. Rather, for the Christian, death is the loosening, release, and departure of oneself from his or her body. What What the Bible calls all elsewhere, our tent or our dwelling place in which we now reside. It is the loosening from the body into the presence and care of God. The person we are lives on with God. At the appearance of Christ, what Paul calls in verse 1 and verse 8, his appearing, by which Paul means the second coming of Christ to bring this age to a close and to take his people into his kingdom. All Christians, all Christians, whether dead or alive at the time of Christ's return, will receive a new body, such as that which Jesus had after his resurrection. He will give us, each of us, a new, imperishable, incorruptible body, fit for eternity in God's eternal kingdom. Death, then, for a Christian, is not a transition or a departure to something worse, but rather to something better. To die is gain, Paul writes in Philippians 2.21. And to depart and be with Christ, he says in 2.23, is very much better. This is what Paul has in mind here in verse 7 and 8 where he said, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's interesting, again, the word Paul uses here for crown. It's not the word for a crown belonging to a a king or a queen, but rather a crown given to one who's been uh, victorious. A a laurel wreath crown is given to a winner. A laurel wreath crown. Paul, as he writes about this, as he talks about that, he says, it is a crown of righteousness, and it's awarded to those who've been forgiven and declared righteous in Christ and who have lived faithfully for Christ. Paul says of them, they are those who have loved his appearing, being totally committed to him. Did Paul believe that a literal crowd would be put on his head? And other also the heads of other believers on that day? I think most likely not, but either way, his point is that eternal life of God is a life of blessing and reward. And that life lies ahead of all who are sold out to Christ. To sacrifice life to Christ, then, is not to lose, but actually to gain. Not only do we live fulfilling, satisfying life of meaning and purpose now, there's an incredible rich life ahead for all who give up their lives to Christ now. This life we live on earth now is not all there is. It is merely the prelude to eternal life with God. So our sacrifice for Christ now is well worth it. Well worth it. 
The question is, what do we do with it? On May 10, 1875, Father Damien Devester landed on the Kalua Papa Peninsula on the island of Molokai in Hawaii. Some of you have probably been there. He lived with the outcast colony of lepers who were forced by the government uh, never to leave the colony until death. He knew in going to live with these people, this would be his last calling. He gave his life, literally, to minister to those people. He died April 15, 1889, after 16 years of caring for those with leprosy on the island and after a five-year struggle with the, de- the, the disease himself. In response to those who had challenged his decision earlier to go to the leper con- uh, colony and to minister, he answered back, suppose the disease does get my body. God will give me another on resurrection day. Some time ago, my wife, Laurel, received an email broadcast from a colleague. Her quick to Laurel and all the others on that broadcast was, this was here, here uh, his thought for the day, her day, her day. Never take life seriously. Nobody gets out alive anyway. Never take life seriously. Nobody gets out of life anyway. Well, how many people believe that? How much they really believe that it doesn't matter because we just, none of us are going to get out of here anyway. How many people believe that? We must reach out to those who are spiritually lost and turn them around. Give them the opportunity. Is that all there is really? How many people believe that? We must reach out to the spiritually lost. Where do we start? What do we do? We begin by presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And we take that literally. And then we fulfill our our ministry. Verse 5. But we, but you, that is Timothy, but you, be sober sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was telling him to fulfill the unique ministry to which he had been called. And we're to do the same. We fulfill our unique ministry. You don't have to be a Paul or a Timothy. You just need to be a you. You say, how do I know what it is? Well, God will make it clear to you if he hasn't already. He'll show you by helping you recognize your serving gifts, causing you to to see ministry needs and and moving your heart to meet these needs by directing and guiding you through his word and through circumstances and people in your life. If you're unclear about your unique ministry now, just know this. Your unique ministry is to the people who are where you are living and where you're working right now. And your ministry, no matter where you are, will always be about two things. Number one, making God's word known to others. And number two, leading others to faith in Christ. Paul told Timothy, and I quote, preach the word. Preach the word. That is, proclaim it like a a herald in the marketplace, announcing important good news. That's our ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Verse 5 there. 
Notice he didn't say, be an evangelist or do the work of one who has the gift of, of evangelism, but rather be about the work of evangelism. In other words, point sinners to Christ and help them to believe in him and trust in him for salvation. Follow him. No matter what, this is what our ministry for Christ is to always be about. Making God's word known and guiding others to faith in Christ. There are many, many ways that we do that. But ultimately, this is our ministry. Let's be about it. There's a well-known story of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. A university student came to him after a service and said, Mr. Moody, do you realize that you made 18 grammatical mistakes in your sermon today? D.L. Moody, who always had a quick reply, said to the young man, Yes, I may have made that many mistakes, but listen, young man, I use all the grammar I have for the Lord. What are you doing with yours? Sacrifice to fulfill that ministry. That's what it takes. Verse 2, be, re- be ready in season and out of season. Put yourself on duty. Clock in and stay clocked out. Clock out when you die. It's been said that the test of whether your mission on earth is finished, if you're alive, it isn't. So be ready for whatever ministry comes your way and take it up, whether it's convenient or not. Give up some things when that's needed. Verse 5, do the work. Put in the labor. Ministry requires effort. Hard work. Go at it. And do so with great patience and instruction. That means put up with people who are slow to get it and hard to be around and who aren't very Christ-like yet. Become a long-suffering teacher. Stay in it for the long haul. Some of you know some family or friends and you know you've got to stay in the long haul. Paul chose sacrifice. It wasn't easy, but at the end of his life, he was able to look back and say, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Wouldn't it be able, great to be able to say that at the end of our lives? It just requires a decision, and the decision is to go all out. Don't go halfway with, with God. Don't go halfway with Christ. Go all the way. 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not with aim, without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, But I discipline my body and I make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Some will, you know, also of Amy Carmichael, a missionary who left England in the 19th century to go a very far away place to serve oppressive girls and women in India, dying there in the mid-20th century. She said, we each have all of eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few minutes before sundown to win them. So what will we choose? Well, let's remember Jesus' words as we close. Mark 10, 43 and 44. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are in this place in this time because you have put us here. We have not come to this place, this time, just out of some, uh, something that dropped out of the sky. It's because you've given us a way to know you and to serve you and to bring many to you. We thank you, Lord, for your servants, Paul and Timothy, who gave up so much so that we, in this era, still are reaching out to the lost. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.